Please be seated, turning to Jeremiah chapter 51, or 31. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, article 5, we find these words as a description of the, the chapter head on providence. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin, and for sundry other just and holy ends. Tonight we have a lesson on divine chastisement. Let us pray and then read Jeremiah 31, verses 15 through 20. Our God and Father, we pray for your help upon our hearing. Grant your Holy Spirit, O Lord, to attend to the preaching, to the reading, to the hearing of your word. And Father, we pray that we would not be served by you according to our readiness, our preparation, or our deserving, but according to the grace that you have boldly demonstrated in the giving of your beloved Son. Lord, we pray that in the merits of Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners and raised for our justification, and enthroned at your right hand, we pray that you would help us, help our children, help our husbands and our wives, help all gathered here tonight, and all who hear this word, in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15 through 20. The word of God. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. For they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf, Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I, had, and after I was instructed, I slapped my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. This is God's word. It is the duty and privilege of every Christian to have the right thoughts about God, especially when God has brought us under his divine chastisements. 
there is a great danger that we would not think much of God when he disciplines us and instead spend most of our time thinking about our miserable condition, what we have lost, what we are missing out on, and what we want to make us happier. But those rails of self-interested thoughts are certainly running in the wrong direction. We should not let our mind board them. What we have in our text tonight is our Lord's own schooling of us on how to think the best thoughts of him when we are under the smarting rod of his discipline, whether as an individual Christian, whether as a local congregation, whether as a regional church, or even a national church. And you will find all addressed in the New Testament, won't you? Just visit again the seven letters to the seven churches. There is chastisement in local congregations and in the lives of individual believers. But it is our duty and our privilege to think the best thoughts of God when he lays on us the smarting rod of chastisement. In our reading, we heard the Lord speak very tenderly to the northern kingdom of Israel. They had been brought under the heavy rod and long discipline of exile. This was God's own doing. He had given them over into the hands of their enemies. The Assyrians had swept into this northern kingdom and killed many and carried off many into exile. And this is why Rachel is weeping for her children. In verse 15, she cannot be comforted. Rachel, the long-dead wife of the long-dead patriarch Jacob, is said to be weeping hundreds and hundreds of years after she died. She is brought forth by Jeremiah the prophet to represent literarily the deep grief which can only flow where bonds of love are most strong, bonds between a mother and her children. But notice what the Lord says to a weeping national mother. He says in verse 16, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. And just when you and your hardness might think the Lord is going to say, If you don't stop crying, I'll give you something to cry about. He says, Stop weeping, for there is a reward for your work. The work of childbearing. There's a reward because these children are born in the covenant of the Lord, and he does not break covenant. He will have a remnant. He will have an elect people from this seed. He says, stop weeping because there is so much hope. There is so much mercy. Because I am not like the Assyrians. Though they are my rod, I hold them, and they too shall be tossed into the fire. What we want to really see in our text is verse 20, because it is there that the Lord reveals his own deep and strong bond of love that rivals the maternal bond of grief in verse 15. The bond of verse 20 is not the bond of maternity. It is the bond of paternity. It is a love of a father, 
More specifically, it is the love of a disciplining father, a father who is almost at war within himself as he disciplines. Does this sound familiar? On one hand, he must chastise his wayward child, the northern kingdom. On the other hand, his desire to be tender and merciful and welcoming to that same child is overflowing within him at the same time. This verse 20 is here, beloved, so that the whole church of God would think right thoughts about God when we are disciplined. This is here so that we would understand that Jesus Christ, having been given for us, having adopted us by his merits and benefits, we are now to always think while under our chastisements of God's eagerness to restore us because we are never outside of our adoption in Christ. His readiness to welcome because we are never outside our adoption in Christ. His yearning to be merciful to us at every step of our repentance and return because we are never outside of our adoption in Christ. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. John Bunyan learned to think these right thoughts about God while he was under divine chastisement. For 12 years, Bunyan was locked up in the Bedford jail. He was in prison because he was a nonconformist. He wouldn't preach as the government required him to preach. While in prison, he was deeply distressed about the well-being of his wife and four children. This only added to his chastisements. And understand something. Not all of God's chastisements are for obvious sin. Much of God's chastisement is simply to test our graces and see those graces strengthened in us for future service. Sometimes it's both and. Bunyan, distressed about his wife and children at home, writes, I found myself a man and compassed with infirmities. The parting with my wife and poor children hath, hath oft been to me in this place as the pulling the flesh from my bones. And that not only because I am somewhat too fond of those great mercies, his wife and child, but also because I should have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with, should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides refers to his daughter Mary. Oh, the thoughts of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But an interesting interesting thing happened to Bunyan while in prison. He discovered something. He discovered that not only did he have a blind child, he discovered that he himself was someone's blind child. And someone was ministering to him out of his blindness, or because of Bunyan's blindness. He writes, Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. 
Here I have seen him and felt him indeed. There's a bounty being given in the midst of chastisement. Bunyan also discovered another thing in prison. Not only did his heart crave to comfort his children, he discovered that he himself was the child of a father who craved to comfort him. Again, writing of his time in prison, I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all turns, as I have found him since I came in hither. When I have startled, even as it were, at nothing else but my shadow, yet God, as being very tender of me, hath not suffered me to be molested, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all, insomuch that I have often said, were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. See how his father is ministering to him, even while he chastises him. Whose hand was it that Bunyan felt in prison? Was it the hand of Satan? Satan cannot illuminate scripture during pain. Satan cannot reveal Christ more clearly during chastisement. Satan cannot feed God's word to us like a fortifying bread during our discipline. Satan would rather starve us, beat us, and then beat us again. Satan cannot bring our souls to any repose upon God. Bunyan was afflicted, but he was not in the hands of Satan. And neither are you when you are afflicted for your sin or for the trying of your graces. And beloved, if you don't know that you've been chastised by God, it's because you are ignorant of the chastisements of God. It's not because they have not been upon you. You have just interpreted all of the trials in your life completely wrongly according to the devil. You have blamed men and governments for your problems and not laid them properly where they belong, at the feet of God. You have not worshipped him and justified him for your afflictions. And it makes you a rebel worthy of even more chastisements. It's a wonder you don't have them if you have not worshipped him for your troubles. Psalm 39.9, every Christian should know it and memorize it. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for the Lord has done it. That's how we should view every affliction and difficulty in our life. We are being chastised more than we know to draw closer to the Lord than we know. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For the Lord has done it. Those words are chiseled on a gravestone in a cemetery in Philadelphia. And under that gravestone lie three siblings who died in their, inf- in their childhood because of the yellow fever. Their parents had the wisdom of a kingdom. Their parents had the wisdom of heaven. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. The Lord has done it. They knew that the Lord had chastised them, and they worshiped God. They justified him, and they drew near to him. When we are disciplined, we must take special care to think on God as the one who has done it, and he has done it as a father, not as a judge. We are reconciled. 
God is not coming in judicial temperament against his children. He cannot. Read Samuel Bolton, The Freedom of the Christian. There is no punishment, no punitive discipline in God. It is all medicinal and fatherly. The Puritans were so adamant about this, to choose the right words. It is the Father's hand that comes. Bunyan makes this point, uh, how necessary it is to think on God as our Father. In another book he wrote, A Treatise on the Fear of God, wrote after his 12 years in prison. You can read it for free on an excellent website called monergism.com. Bunyan writes in that booklet, whatever happens to you, I mean as a chastisement for sin, after the spirit of adoption is come, thou oughtest to hold fast by faith the relation of father and son. You must steal away into your closet, and as the spirit of adoption comes to minister to you in your discipline, you must hold fast by faith that you are the son of a heavenly father, and it is your father who stands next to you, who holds the rod. Here's the thing. If we try to bear up under discipline without at the same time bearing in our hearts, carrying to our hearts the father's affection for us in the bond of sonship, if we try to bear up without that, our hearts are going to wander. We will start thinking God is being too hard with us, We will start thinking that God has misread us, that God has misinterpreted us, God doesn't understand us. We will start to think all sorts of crazy, foolish things if we do not carry to our hearts the Father's affection for us in the very midst of our discipline, because in fact, he is being so tender to us, not laying it on as long or as heavy as as he ought. Charles Spurgeon said, it is the discipline of love, this fatherly hand. Every step of it, Spurgeon says, is kindness. There is no wrath nor vengeance in any part of the process. The discipline of the school may be harsh and stern, but that of the family is love. We are sure of this, says Spurgeon, and the consolation which it affords is unutterable. Love will not wrong us. There will be no needless suffering. Were this but kept in mind, there would be fewer hard thoughts of God among men, even when his strokes are the most severe. Beloved, let us remember, it is our duty, our privilege, to think the right thoughts about God when the rod of chastisement is on us. And we must understand that God does not begin to love us after his discipline has completed It's perfect work. That's a doctrine of demons, that God begins to love us only then. God does not begin to love us in the middle of our discipline because he sees progress in us. That's the doctrine of demons. No, God loves us before our discipline because we are sons before our discipline. We do not become sons after our discipline nor do we become become sons because we were disciplined. We are disciplined because we are already sons. It's the illegitimate children that Hebrews 12 says God doesn't discipline. He leaves 
the wicked alone, and they prosper, Psalm 72. Love precedes discipline, said John Owen. And because love comes first, it will remain even when in heaven we will no longer need to be disciplined. What did the Lord say to his covenant people through Jeremiah when they were under discipline? We didn't read this in chapter 31, but it's there. It's at the top of the chapter. In the midst of their discipline, he said to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. This is why I continue my faithfulness to you. He did not wait to say this when they had four decades of first-rate obedience on the books. He said it to a disobedient, discipline-needing people, an ancient church under chastisement. And it is this love alone that explains the presence of discipline in your life. God has taken you as adopted sons by the merits of mediation and mercies of his own son, and therefore he now disciplines you because as a father he refuses to ignore his sons. Not one of them will he ignore. His plan for every son is the refinement so that they are heavy laden in the graces of Jesus Christ, that they enjoy God, and therefore they must be brought away from enjoying the world, brought away from enjoying the flesh, brought away from enjoying sin. So he fathers them with that which will surely get their attention, pain. Let him design it, but understand that it is often pain. Physical pain, relational pain, national pain, generational pain. I have pain from all places, so do you. And the Lord is my Father, and he knows what to set upon us. Now this is the reason, what I am saying to you, that we must carry the Father's affection deep into our hearts when he disciplines us. And this is the reason why we keep finding scriptures frequently pressing the fatherly bond on our ears when we are subjected to discipline. It's so that we would think more on divine love than on pain. Listen to these scriptures, Deuteronomy 32, 6. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Then in another place we hear, a remnant under discipline, cry out to God. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Isaiah 63, 16. Then in another place we hear this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. No discipline? The father has no delight in you. Discipline? Oh, he delights in you. The point for now is we must set our thoughts on the affection and fatherliness of our heavenly father 
when we are being disciplined. It is your duty to do so. To just think about the pain and the secondary causes of it is paganism. You are an adopted child of God in the bonds of Christ. You are to think about your father laying it on you and draw near to him and cling to him and wait for him to quiet the discipline. Even pray that he quiets it. Go back to Psalm 39. The very next verse is 10. Lord, withhold your rod. We are granted that permission to pray. John Flavel said, For my own part, let the Lord lay on as smartly as he will upon me. I desire to follow the holy patterns and precedents recorded in Scripture for my imitation and to say with the people of God, Thou hast punished me less than my iniquities deserve. And he quotes Isaiah 9, verse 13. Why would John Flavel think this way? Some people would think this guy's a nut job. He's my favorite nut job then. I have all Flavel's works in my house. You should come and see them. I have a sinful uh, interest in them. <laughs> He's a, why would somebody think like this and talk like this and write like this? I'll tell you why. Because it is true. And it is good for the soul. And it is how you enjoy God, even when God is laying it on smartly. We must think this way, too. So we do not lose sight of the fatherliness of the Father in our discipline. Remember this, the design of your discipline, you know, it has a certain schematic to it. There are plans. You could look at them. The Lord was so kind to show you. The design of your discipline and the motive is heavenly fatherly. The depth of the strokes in your discipline is heavenly fatherly. The duration of your discipline, it's heavenly, fatherly. And especially the pain in your discipline, it is known and measured by your heavenly father. This is the reason we must not design our own chastisements, nor design the chastisements of others. It is only the heavenly father who knows how to do this. This is the reason we should even be a little suspicious that we definitely know what sin in our lives needs disciplining. Only the Heavenly Father knows this. Because he can turn his children out of sin many times without discipline. Even by bounty and kindness, doesn't he often turn you away, away from sin? I remember driving. I was taking a left turn on Route 113 off of Route 5. I had just gone about 100 yards, and I was going west on Route 13, and this thought hit me. And I remember this. I've, I've told this story a few times. Maybe you've heard it. And I realized I had not prayed for like six days, and I was a pastor. Fire that guy. The Lord was kinder than you, <laughs> if you want to fire me. And I remember thinking, I had not prayed. I had been prayerless. And, and I immediately started recounting all these good things that the Lord had done in those six days. And I was shocked. And I was cut to the heart. And the Lord's goodness broke my heart. The Lord has many ways to turn us out of our sin. We should even be suspicious 
that we know what chastisement is needed to most effectively remove our sin or anybody else's. It's all best left in the hands of our Heavenly Father. We will end up hurting ourselves more than our Father ever will if we would design our own chastisements. Martin Luther, put down your whip. Stop flagellating yourself under moonlight at the window. The Lord is your Father. Ours is but to pursue faith and the obedience of faith as revealed in the word of God, and let God then, our Father, chastise us as we do that, conforming us, searching us, and he does so so faithfully and perfectly as our Father. Now let me give you another look at that scripture that we started with in Jeremiah 31. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. What extraordinary words to speak to a rebellious people who haven't finished their regiment of chastisement yet. Samuel Rutherford, getting a bit creative about that verse, decides to put it in slightly different words to help us catch the heart of the Father. I spake much in mine anger against him, and half against my will. I did chide him and scourge him, but my moved bowels, the stirrings of my compassionating heart, did contradict my rough correcting. My heart came out of me with every rough word and stroke. Samuel Rutherford's exposition of Jeremiah 31.20. I want to be that father. I need to spend time with that father. He spends time with you, beloved. All of this should remind us, really, of what we saw between other members of a family. The Lord wanted us to see it, didn't he? Joseph's brothers, they come down to Egypt at the height of the famine looking for grain. Genesis 42.7 says, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Then it says 10 verses later, 42.17, and he put them all together in custody for three days. He chastised them. And then a few verses later, seven verses, in fact, again, Genesis 42, 24, then he turned away from them and wept. Tender love at the same time of chastisement and rough words. We see it in Joseph because we are meant to see it in his father in heaven, our father in heaven. So, beloved, it is our duty and our privilege whenever we are being disciplined and chastised, chastised to not drift away from our God, to not think that we will go off into the wilderness and not meet with God, and eventually maybe there'll be a flag raised up on the pole and it will say, that's the time to come home. No, the Lord is already telling us 
the first stroke of discipline is the time to come home. And what will we find when we come through the door? Ask the prodigal son. We won't even get near the door and we'll be covered in kisses because the father runs down the road, bears his legs by lifting up his robe, which is a humiliating thing in an ancient culture. And he will wrap his arms around us, kiss us. The tenderness of your father should turn you out of sin. So you have a duty and the privilege to go and draw into your heart all of the affection of your father. I want to close with a word from Bunyan. In that little book he wrote, A Treatise on the Fear of God, which turns out I would like to retitle it, A Treatise on the Chastisement of God. He talks more about chastisement in there than he does in any of his other works. He says, Know then that thy sin, after thou hast received the spirit of adoption, to cry unto God, Father, Father, for thy sin is counted the transgression of a child, not of a slave, and that all that happeneth to thee for that transgression is but the chastisement of a father. Let us pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the bond of sonship that is ours through Jesus Christ in the adopting grace of our salvation. All the privileges of sonship are ours. It is your will that we would believe this and live off of it like bread. Father, you are chastising us. Just as our confession says in 5.5, it is your will for us to indeed be separated from our sins and to be fortified for the future. You know what we need. We look about our lives and we see many things that are disappointing to us. Things that we find against us. Maybe it's even a bad marriage or a bad relationship with a son or a daughter or a boss. Maybe it is our body failing and we can't seem to stop it. Maybe it is some conflict that we would wish had never come to our door. Father, we confess that we have often thought like pagans and have assigned these things only to men. Or we have thought like pagans and assigned these things to some deity that we have called the Lord, but who is not regarded as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us that we have not justified you and worshipped you for all the things that you are doing with us. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace in our hearts to pull with a zeal down all the affections of your fatherly love into the things that are so heavy upon us, so unwelcome in many ways by us. Grant us, Father, such grace to make those troubles a habitation of deep fellowship and affection with you, that we would come to that maturity like we hear in Spurgeon and Flavel, that we, O Lord, would 
even find ourselves thankful and welcoming the troubles that draw us near into your bosom. Let us not let go of you until we know how we are loved with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name, amen.